Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 945 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. We have a guest speaker this morning, uh, Mike Beckham. Would you guys give Mike a welcome? Awesome. Mike is going to be walking us through our third, uh, third section of our series, Elements of the Gospel, talking about grace and mercy. Thanks, Mike, for speaking this morning. Good morning. Great to be with you guys this morning. Um, as Kevin said, we're going to be talking about grace and mercy this morning, but I thought I'd start by introducing a little bit about myself. Um, so I've got a picture of my family. Um, this is my wife, Heather. We've been married for 19 years. This will be 20 next May. Uh, and those are my kids. My son, Carter, just turned 11, and my daughter, Kenzie, is just about to turn eight. She'll turn eight this weekend. Uh, so being a father and, and husband is a huge part of my life. If you were to walk into my office, you would see that there are many, many pictures of my family in my office. I became a Christian in college, had my life radically transformed. One of the ways that I describe it as I was in college for five years because that's how long my scholarship would pay for. And if you sliced it right down the middle, that's when I met Jesus. And I had these wildly different halves of college. Uh, and then uh, to, to my great surprise, I ended up uh, agreeing to one year of ministry right after college. And one year turned into two, turned into 10. And I was in full-time vocational ministry uh, for 10 years uh, on OU's campus right out of college. Uh, and then just when I thought I'm never going to use that business degree that uh, I got when I was a student, God called me into the business world. Uh, and today what I do is I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Simple Modern that some of you might be familiar with. So uh, if we go to the next slide, just to recap where we've been, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, the first part was Kevin talking about who is God? What is God's character like? And that's a very weighty and important question. If we're going to have some kind of a relationship with God, then we need to know what he's like, right? And then Kevin talked about sin, repentance, and belief, an understanding of who we are and the way that that deeply impacts how we relate with God. Uh, we're going to continue on that today by talking about grace and mercy. So I showed you a picture of my kids. And one of the things that's really interesting about children is that there are some things that are kind of nature, right? They're innate. And then there's some things that are nurture, like, hey, they picked that up from watching Heather and I interact with each other. So one of the things that's innate that you do not have to teach children because it's just hardwired in the way that they see the world, and it's true of every child, is this idea of fairness. They naturally think about the world and think about, is that fair? And specifically, they're very quick to point out when they see anything uh, in regards to their treatment that they don't perceive as fair. It's not fair that my sister got a bigger slice of pizza than I did. It's not fair that I didn't get to play with my toys, but she did, or whatever. 
And so fair, fair, fair. They just innately are wired to think about fairness. So as I was thinking about how do we talk about grace and mercy in a way that could resonate, because many of you, you have heard about the concept of grace and mercy and how God is graceful. You've heard about it before. I'm not going to be the first person that you hear speak about this. But I want to talk about it from maybe a little bit of a different angle, because sometimes for me it's helpful when we think about things from a little bit of a different angle. Uh, it's helpful for it to get past that part of me that's like, yeah, 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 I've heard all this before, right? And to really kind of connect with my heart. Grace and mercy are at the very core of what makes us unique as Christians. If you're a Christian and you say, I believe the Bible, I believe that this is the true way to view God, then you better have a reason why it's distinct from all the other religious trains of thought and all the other ways that people think about God. And truly grace and mercy set the Christian faith apart from everything else. They are that distinct. So what we're going to do is we're gonna, I'm going to read back through Romans 3, that passage that we heard at the beginning. And basically, I'm going to frame it this way. This is Paul talking about how unfair God is. Okay? Paul elaborating on the unfairness of God. Let's, let's read it. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? Oh, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, I'm going to be really honest with you. This is an amazing passage. It is a lot. Even for me, it's a lot to kind of parse out like, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Like, what is Paul like tangibly trying to say that I can really relate with? Like, there's little passages that I can kind of grab onto, but the whole thing just feels like very wordy. There's a lot of stuff going on. And what I want to do is I want to make it a little bit easier for us to digest today by just focusing on a couple of the pieces of it. The first is this. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He uses the word all because it's emphasized throughout scripture that there is one thing that no matter how different our backgrounds or our upbringings or our income levels or our education or any other thing, there is one thing that is true of all of us. And that is, there is a piece of our spiritual nature that is broken. 
It's been true of everybody in this room. It's true of everybody who lives right now. It's true of everyone who's ever lived, that there is a part of us that is broken. And an analogy that I like to use to describe it is uh, that it's like a cancer in our soul. The, the cancer in our soul is one of selfishness that, and a, a desire and a will to do what we want to do instead of what we were created to do that infects every part of us. So if you think about it as like a cancer of the soul, um, there's a couple different types of cancer. There's cancer, that, cancer that's kind of localized, right? Like sometimes you'll hear that people have cancer, like they have cancer in their lung or something. But the most important thing when they give a cancer diagnosis, other than the type of cancer it is, is if it's metastatic. Do you guys know what metastatic cancer is? Metastatic cancer means that the cancer has now gotten into the bloodstream and it has gone everywhere. And the, moment, the reason why that word is so important is that the moment that happens, it's basically a death sentence, okay? So what does that have to do with what Paul's saying? What Paul is saying is the type of cancer that we all have in our soul is metastatic. As much as we want to think of it as localized, of like, well, you know, yeah, I am kind of in that one area, it is true, I'm pretty selfish, that he's like, no, it's everywhere. It pervades and bleeds into everything that we do. So it's not just that we all have sin. It's not just that this condition is true about you and I. It's that it is far more pervasive and far more deadly than we want to think of it that it impacts absolutely everything. Jesus takes it to a whole nother level at one point in scripture. The way that people had understood this condition was mostly through the law up until this point, right? So when you think of the law, what do you think of? Like what's an example of the law? There's 10 of them, right? We think of like, okay, it's things like the Ten Commandments, right? You shouldn't kill, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't covet, things like that. What Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount is he has this one passage where he just kind of slaps people with, a, with the truth, which is, you've heard it said that you should not kill anyone. And everybody's nodding and says like, yeah, yeah, haven't done it, I'm feeling good. And he's like, but I tell you, if you've ever been angry enough at someone that if there were no consequences that you would have offed them, boom, you're a murderer. If you've ever looked at somebody who's not your wife and thought about them in a lustful way, you're an adulterer. And he took, takes this standard and he just raises it to the point where it's like, okay, wow. If that's the standard of the law, then I am worse and I am more in violation than I ever would have thought. And Paul leads off with like, none of this other stuff is going to make sense until we really get that. And I want that to be one of the things you take from this is that the word gospel means good news, translates to good news. And the only way the gospel is really good news, the extent that it's good news is the extent to which you understand the bad news of how we are. So I wanna share the first kind of big idea that I want you to grasp out of this passage. We naturally want life to be fair, right? 
but if we got fair from God, it would go really badly for us. This is what Paul's basically saying. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, all deserve to be separated from him, all have driven a relational wedge between themselves and him. And if we were to get what we really deserved, what we're really entitled to, we wouldn't want it. Because we have this problem that we can't fix. We have this cancer of the soul that is so pervasive and has infected everything about us. And this rubs really hard against one of the things in each of our hearts, and that is we want to view ourselves as good, right? And I'm just, I'm just speaking from my, my own perspective. I want to view myself as good, right? And the moment I start to think of myself as not being good or as being bad, I have a defense mechanism. You guys know what the defense mechanism is? The defense mechanism is I start to try and find points of reference, things I can compare myself to that will make me feel better about myself. I'll give you an, uh, an example. Did you know that in prisons there is a moral hierarchy? Do you know this? It turns out that if you've been convicted of a crime, let's say you murdered somebody, that even for that person, this desire to feel better than is so pervasive that they will say, well, at least I'm not a child molester, right? We so deeply want to feel like we have something good inside of us that it causes us to want to compare ourselves to other people and to try and find some reference point where we can feel better about ourselves, where we can feel better about this reality, this first reality. What we want to do in response to our sin is compare ourselves to other people. But the Bible repeatedly says we have to think about our sin in reference to God and his standard and who he is. And if we take our eyes off that, we're gonna be lost. But the moment we say, no, I'm gonna look at who I am and how I am in relation to how God is, then we can start to see clearly. But you're going to want to self-medicate. You're going to want to go the other way, where instead you just compare yourself to other people and you find, well, I'm not Hitler. You know, where you just find some reason to feel better about things. And you gotta, you gotta basically sit in this idea that you're not first. Okay, so let's go to the rest, let's go back to the passage. But now, you're gonna, there's a couple of buts in passages that we are gonna look at today, Paul says, but now something different is about to happen. We separate time into BC and AD. Why? Because Jesus is this hinge point in history where God reveals how much better than fair he is. This whole passage is about how if God was fair, we would be lost, but now we realize that God isn't fair. Let's go to the next slide. And he says that even though all have, fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we, are, we now, but now, we can be justified by his grace as a gift. The whole point 
of Jesus' ministry was actually to give a gift. He taught us about God, yes. He healed people, yes. But why did he have to come? Why can't he teach those things about himself through prophets like he does in the Old Testament? Why does Jesus have to come? He has to come because he has to give a gift. And that that gift only happens through the cross. At the cross, we're told that something happens in uh, the years since as we've grappled with this, theologians have called it the great exchange. But here's basically what it looks like. Jesus goes to the cross. He takes all of our disease, all our sin, all that cancer, all the consequences, all the debt. He takes all of that and he pays it and he offers us something in return. He offers us the ability to be seen as righteous as he is. And that is an absurd idea. I mean, I just want you to know, if you're in this room, if you call yourself a Christian, like that is an idea that to the outside world is absurd that anyone would ever offer something like that. I give you all my worst stuff and instead you give me back the ability to be viewed by God as as good and as righteous as you are, like that doesn't even make any sense. But in fact, that's exactly what Jesus did. That's how much better than fair God is. If you go to the next slide. The big idea that I want you to grasp here is grace is God's gift. Unearned, undeserved gift that he gives to you and to me. And actually to receive that gift, there's just one pretense you have to drop. It's amazing how little he asks of us to receive the gift, but there is one thing, and you gotta drop the pretense that you in any way, at any time, have earned what he has given you. That you had anything to do with why he's offering it to you. As long as you hold on to that pretense, you actually can't accept the gift. But the moment that you give that up, He's willing to give you the most unfair gift you'll ever receive in your entire life. There is a spectrum here, and there's a pitfall on either side that we're going to talk about here in just a second, our groups. On one side, and I don't know that you'd word it just like this, but think about the spectrum, and on one side, the pitfall is, I mean, I'm not a perfect person, but I don't really know how much I need that level of grace. I don't know that you would say it that way, but what this is, is it's the part of us that bends towards self-righteousness. It's the part of us that constantly plays the game of finding a way to mentally minimize the amount of brokenness inside of us and the amount of need that we have. That's one ditch. And we all veer into that ditch from time to time. The other ditch is God would never, he would never give me that good of a gift. Maybe other people, but he knows what I've done. He knows how I think about that thing, or he, he knows, because he knows me as well as he does, there's no way that he would actually offer that to me. And either of those, both of those, are these ditches that pull us away from him. Let's look at one more passage before we go to groups. 
In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul summarizes a lot of these ideas really beautifully. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one could boast. And here's, here's the thing I want you to see here. God is absurdly wealthy in grace. Like when we think about God owns everything, God controls everything, one of the things that's true about God, think about the richest person you've ever known. And think about like Jeff Bezos. Like Jeff Bezos couldn't spend all of his money if he spent his entire life trying. He has that much wealth, right? And that is yet nothing compared to the wealth that God has, but God has a different type of wealth. It's not, it's not as base as money. God is infinitely wealthy when it comes to grace and mercy. He literally cannot run out. Jesus, it, the Bible tells us Jesus is full of grace and truth. You imagine something that's all the way to the brim always. And just like at the wedding where Jesus turns water into wine and they keep pouring and it just keeps coming, right? He never runs out. It's infinite grace, it's infinite mercy. And what's crazy in this passage, which was really cool, is that it's like, what, it, what Paul is saying is that in eternity, like we, when we have wealth, how do we, how do we display it? in stupid ways, like I wear a nice watch or I have a big house or a big car. How does God display his wealth? By redeeming people and by the countless number of people in eternity that have been redeemed. That's how he displays his wealth. It's totally different than the way that we would think about it. Okay, so let's do some discussion questions. What's the time that you've been treated better than you deserve to be treated? How did it make you feel? How did it make you respond? I want to talk a little bit about how this practically impacts our life. How do we view ourselves? How do we view other people? Both passages that we looked at, Ephesians and Romans, get here. And Paul asks this rhetorical question, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Paul is basically going to say that grace takes a sledgehammer to this this desire that we have to compare ourselves to other people. Let's go to the next slide. Jesus is going, it's still, this is labeled wrong. It says Romans, but this is actually from one of the gospels. Jesus tells a parable and this parable is meant to really drive home everything that we've been talking about. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then this is my emphasis, but Jesus says, I tell you 
This man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There aren't a lot of situations where Jesus makes it as clear as he does here. This person has a saving relationship with God and this person does not. And the distinction is not necessarily the distinction that we would pick out. One of these people looks a lot more put together. One of these people goes to Sunday school. One of these people gives faithfully every single week to the deaf and blind charity. And yet, they're not the one that goes home justified. Why? Because the heart attitude is one of proudness and of comparison. Whereas, and, and this is an important thing to get, the tax collectors were not good people, right? They really were not great folks. The reason why the tax collector walks down from the temple justified is simply because in his heart, he had a deep understanding of the grace that he needed and he wanted it. And that's all God needs from you and from I. While we desire to compare and to boast, God just wants the need, us to understand our need for him and our acceptance of what he offers us. This is one of the reasons why in our culture we have the kind of like, if you've said the prayer, then you're definitely a Christian. And like, listen, the Bible is clear that if you have placed your faith in the saving work of what Jesus did, he gives it to you as a free gift and you cannot lose that thing. And yet, just because you went to some summer camp and you said some words, they're not magic words. They didn't save you. The reason you should have assurance of salvation in Christ is there's only one reason, and that is on a heart level, you understand that you had a problem that you could not ever fix and that he gave you a gift of righteousness. That's how you know that you're in a saving relationship with Jesus. Let's go to the next. Paul takes it one step further. When he's there's this thing that would happen in the early churches. You know, they didn't, they didn't have everything written down. They'd have these sayings that they would say to each other to remind each other of what was true. And Paul says this. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the apostle Paul who had his body beaten for the gospel laid down his life in every way you can possibly imagine for the gospel. And yet he says, it is great for me. It is great for me to say, among sinners, I'm the foremost. And so if it's good enough for Paul, it should definitely be good enough for you and I. But why? Why is that powerful? Is this some kind of like repeated self-flagellation that we need to go through as a part of repentance? I don't think so. I think it's because it helps us to accurately see ourselves and it helps us to accurately see God and how good he is and how great his grace is. I'll give you two questions that you can ask yourself, okay? Here's the first. If a friend of yours or somebody, maybe somebody who's not a friend of yours, came to you and had hard feedback, if they said, man, you really, you're really pretty self-righteous, or you know, you're really a hypocrite, or you really, you really hurt my feelings here. How quickly in your heart do you go to defending yourself? 
Because here's what I know about myself. My immediate jump is, oh, well, wait, no, you didn't understand. Well, actually, and you know what, you know what that is? That's me clinging to my self-righteousness. I had this real breakthrough moment in my life, and here it was. It's really simple. Changed my life. Maybe this will be helpful to you. Whenever anyone brought me critical feedback, I immediately took the default position of assuming that they were right. You know why? Because I know my heart. I know how deeply sin runs in my life. And so even if I am a little bit misunderstood, there's truth on some level to what they're saying, right? And so how receptive, how do you respond when you get negative feedback? That'll give you a really great read on where you're actually at in this area. Let me give you one more. When someone else has wronged you, how quick are you to dispense forgiveness and grace to them? I mean, Jesus calls this one out. He's like, if you say that you've accepted my grace and my mercy, and yet you treat others with no grace and no mercy, then you are living in a fantasy world, right? It's like the parable where a guy gets a debt forgiven of like $100, and, and then he like goes and he beats some guy that owns him 10. So those are two questions we can ask ourselves. And here's the big point I want you to hear. When you, if you have, when you placed your faith in Christ, you had an understanding of your need and your sin that was like this. And as you go through the Christian life, you know what will happen? Is you'll realize that your need and your sin was far greater than you could have ever understood at the moment. And as that happens, you realize the gift you've been given was better than you realized. The Christian life is this like progressive realizing that we've been given a better and better gift than we realized the day before. I'll just give one simple example of this. You know, several years ago, uh, we, we sell a lot of things on Amazon and there was this point when several of our people were out of town on vacation where Amazon kind of paused our account, uh, suspended our account. It ended up being just kind of a technical error on their part. But I had to call uh, one of our team members who was in New York and say, hey, I need you to help me. I need you to pull an all-nighter with me to try and figure this out. And he did. And I knew that like, man, he's in New York with his wife. That's not very fun, right? You're, you're on vacation. You got to work all night. What I found out a week or two later, is that he had had tickets to the original cast of Hamilton, and he had skipped going to Hamilton to pull on, you know. It's like, wow, okay, I already knew what you did was amazing, but, but that reframes it. This is what the Christian life is like. It's like us realizing just more and more deeply how absurdly generous, how absurdly unfair God's grace and mercy is. So the big idea is that the way you get to thankfulness and the way you get to humility, you, there's, there's really one path. And that is that we focus more and more on God's grace and God's mercy in our life. And that as a result, not only are we changed internally, but we will treat others differently. 
that naturally I want to treat other people the way that God has treated me. It's the only logical, it's the only natural response. Okay, a couple of questions to discuss at our groups. What's an area of your life where you've realized you need more grace than you previously believed? When you experience heart thankfulness, how does it impact your actions? What's an example of a time that you've experienced thankfulness and it's led you to treat others different or to act differently? And then finally, what's one tangible way that you can treat someone in your life differently this week because of how God treats you?